0: Now, our Bible reading this morning comes from Matthew's Gospel. If uh, you have a a Bible close to you or a pew Bible, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verses 57, and then into chapter 28, really chapter 28 that we're thinking mostly about uh, this morning. It's page 1,000, if you've got one of the pew Bibles, page 1,000. We've been working our way through Matthew's gospel. We're nearly at the end, and uh, this morning we come to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So we're going to read in from Matthew 27, verse 57, page 1,000, Matthew 27, verse 57. This is God's Word. As evening approached... There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Jesus took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb, and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So, give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. "'Take a guard,' Pilate answered. "'Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how.' So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb." And did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews." Well, I think uh, all of us will know what it is to uh, find something that is a long, drawn-out ending. I'm sure you've been watching a movie, and you basically think, this is over, but there seems to be another 20 minutes to go. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, I do not know what they did with that last movie. About half of it seems to be ending, and it just seems to be an almost interminable. Now, that's a charge that you couldn't lay against Matthew because we had uh, suggested a couple of weeks ago that as we get up to chapter 27, Matthew's story really begins to slow down as he comes to the cross. He looks at it in great detail. In the final hours of Jesus' life, he, he sketches everything out really, really carefully. But, but then as we get past that into chapter 28, we find that everything speeds up, and very quickly we have the resurrection and the final appearance of Jesus to the disciples, and that's it. His record is complete. And we find ourselves coming in this morning to that compact chapter. We, we've, we've had a broad title for this journey, as we've worked our way through Matthew over these uh, months, really, and it's, we've called it Walking with Jesus, because the, the reason that we've called it that is that this gospel is very much focusing on what it means to be a disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple today? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And Matthew lays that out for us. And today, we want to ask the question, why? why follow Jesus? Why should we? What what makes it reasonable to follow Jesus? He calls us to a particular life, a life that is challenging, and therefore we've got to acknowledge that while this life is hard, there must surely be some reasons why we should do it. Think, for example, of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew has made it clear that, that the things that Jesus says can be sometimes quite outrageous. You know how it is. Sometimes people will say, well, uh, I I really like Jesus' teaching. I I don't really have much other time for anything else that uh, is to do with religion or Christianity, but I like the teaching of Jesus. Well, people who say that sometimes, I think they've not really studied the teaching of Jesus at all. Listen to some of the things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Or later, anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Again, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And he said, I love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Incredibly radical, cross-cultural, countercultural teaching. Now, not only does Matthew make it clear that Jesus says some very challenging things, he makes it clear that following him is going to involve a a sacrificial life. So Jesus says if anyone would come after me he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We looked at that verse particularly. How it is that that following Jesus means handing over your life to him to say my life running my life with me in charge is over. I'm dead to that as it were. I've taken up my cross. I am now following Jesus. He is my boss. He's the one who is running uh, my life. So you can't deny that that sounds hard. Turns out that that's the way to great blessing, but it sounds hard nonetheless. So why does it do it? Why follow Jesus? Matthew shows us here in this chapter, he shows us saying, yes, following Jesus is hard, but it is the most obvious rational decision you can ever make. And in a nutshell, his reason is this, because Jesus is alive, because he has risen is a theme that we'll be returning to, of course, in a few months at Easter, but it's helpful for us out of sync, as it were, of the calendar year to look particularly at why the fact that Jesus is alive makes following Him worthwhile. Very simple thing to say uh, this morning, just one sort of sentence that sums up where we're going. Jesus is alive, and we should follow joyfully, though many oppose Him. That, that's that's what, what's going on here. Let's think about this. Jesus is alive. Matthew takes substantial time to help us believe that. As the other Gospels do, Matthew tells us the story of Jesus, but doesn't stop at the crucifixion. He tells us about the resurrection. We see that uh, Joseph of Arimathea comes and gets the body from Pilate, puts, him, puts the body in the tomb, and uh, Pilate is, is open to doing this, but he certainly hasn't become a follower of Jesus. He's not interested in that. He just wants the story of Jesus to go away. And you can see that in the next part of the story. The Jewish leaders, the chief priests, the Pharisees in this case, they, they want to avoid the possibility of the disciples stealing the body of Jesus and then spreading a rumor about his rising. And so they suggest to Pilate that the tomb should be guarded. And and Pilate agrees with that. No matter how how much uh, has gone on with Pilate's life, some people think he's starting to feel a, a measure of conviction in all of this. No matter how much is going on in Pilate's life, Pilate comes first. He doesn't want any trouble. But as Matthew tells us about this, he makes it clear that Jesus really is alive. And, and you see, he tells us exactly what the chief priests say. You see that? His disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Now, you think about that. The Jewish leaders fear a fabricated story, and they know that the key to refuting that story is to be able to produce Jesus' body. So they want to hang on to it. They know no matter what story emerges about a resurrection, if they can point the people to the tomb and the tomb is still occupied, Jesus' body's in it, then all claims to Jesus being the Son of God or resurrection or anything like that all go away. Jesus goes away. His claims are shown to be false. And the fact that they never produce that body shows that they never have it, that the tomb is empty. Now, Pilate realizes that. He he realizes that the key to stopping any rise in in a Jesus movement is to be able to hold on to his body. And so, he tells them to make the tomb secure. You notice the irony. He says, make it as secure as you know how. Do your best. He says, maybe he's starting to think, well, you know, if he really is the Son of God, perhaps he's talked to the centurion who has told him how he died. If he really is the Son of God, then no guard is going to stop him tomb is closed. It's sealed. The seal of the Sanhedrin put on it. The the, the seal of the Sanhedrin functioned a little bit like like that blue and white police tape, you know, do not cross. you, You don't go near this. And a guard is posted. It occurred to me as I was reading this, I wonder what way the guards were facing. What way do you think they stood? Pretty sure they stood with their backs to the tomb to watch for the approach of the disciples they might have been better to stand with their backs to the disciples and watch the tomb, because that's where the action happened. There was an earthquake, and uh, it was a second earthquake. The earth quaked as Jesus died, but it quaked as he rose, and an angel came, rolled back the stone, and sat on it. Now, why did Jesus not roll away the stone by himself? He could have, of course— And one person has suggested that this is because heaven's approval is being emphasized. So Jesus didn't break out of the tomb as such though he could have, but God, his Father, sent a messenger to open the tomb. The Father would not have done this if what Jesus had accomplished was not full and complete. In other words, God was saying of Jesus, by sending an angel, I completely approve of what you have achieved. Well, the guards faint, as you can imagine, and the women turn up. The angel invites them to remember what Jesus has said. He has risen, just as He said, and they invite Him. The angel invites the woman to look at the empty tomb. So, so we're not left, and they're not left in any doubt. They, they run back to the disciples. They meet Jesus on the way. They worship Him, and again, there's another piece of evidence here, isn't it? Just to convince us who this Jesus is. You see what happens? They're running from the, the tomb, and they are afraid, and they're full of joy. And then they see Jesus, and they clasp His feet, and they worship. So here are the three things that they're, they're doing. They're, there's fear, there's joy, and there's worship. And Jesus says one of those things is not appropriate. What does He say? Do not Fear. There's no need to fear with the risen Jesus. Interesting that that the angel says to the woman, Fear ye not. Now he, he says that there's a ye in there that's not reflected in our modern translations. It's particularly directed to the woman, it's not directed to the guards. The guards should fear. In opposition to Jesus, they should fear. But for those who trust in Jesus, there's no fear if there risen Jesus. But it's, it's interesting that, that Jesus says this is inappropriate. Do not fear. But their worship and their joy he approves of. Jesus takes their worship. You know, on one, on one occasion, uh, Paul and uh, Barnabas are in Lystra in, in the book of Acts, and they, they perform a particular miracle, and people start to, to worship them as gods. That's what they think they are. And they tear their clothes. It, it's an anathema to them. They, they realize that, that, that for a, a mere human being to be worshipped is entirely inappropriate. We're looking at Revelation in the evenings. At the end of Revelation, John falls down before one of the angels and begins to worship. And the angel tells him, don't worship me. I'm a a fellow creature. God is to be worshiped alone. And here is Jesus, when presented with fear and joy and worship, says, don't fear. Be joyful. He accepts their worship. Who is this Jesus? He's the Son of God who has come forth from the tomb. God is the only one to be worshipped. Jesus takes it. Well, the guards tell their story to the chief priests. There is clearly no body for them to produce, and so they are paid off, and they're they're told to spread this story that the body was stolen whenever they were sleeping. It's clearly a common rumor that Matthew wants to refute. Justin Martyr, one of the early church leaders around A.D. 170, 160, 140 years after Jesus' resurrection, says in one of his writings that the Jews dispersed the story by means of special messengers to every country. Isn't that amazing? So, it's a widely held belief. Incredible. Incredible effort that they go to in order to spread that story. Of course, it doesn't stack up, does it? The disciples would be giving their lives for something that they knew not to be true. So even though Matthew's account is brief, it's full of detail to show us that Jesus is really alive and that He really is the Son of God who has conquered the tomb. Now, what does that mean? Well, well, that being true, you see, everything changes. That being true, he is worth following. People will say that today the question that people ask to evaluate something is, how does it make me feel? This is an incredible generalization, I'm sure. But people today tend to say, how does that make me feel? Does it make me feel good? Does it make me feel approved of? People will ask of a different generation would have asked, Does this work? Does it produce results? Practical results? But there's a different question, isn't there? When we evaluate something that really we should think more carefully about. And that is, is this true? In other words, with Jesus, is Jesus true? Did he really do the things that he said he did? Did he live up to the claims that He made about Himself. And the resurrection, you see, shows us that He really is the Son of God, come into this world, crucified and risen. And so that means it's the most logical thing in the world to follow Him. Why else would we, where else would we go but to this Son of God, crucified and risen? Matthew is saying, look, he really is alive. Therefore, all of this challenging life that he calls you to, all of the challenges of of putting him above yourself really are worth it because he is true. He is who he claims he is. So that brings us to the second little part of our sentence. We should follow joyfully. That's the logic of what Matthew has told us. It's not only the logic, however, because the women run from the tomb with fear and joy, and, and we've seen, they've seen this angelic visitor from heaven. They're afraid because of what they have seen, but because of what they've told, they're full of joy. It's uh, not the he is not here part that fills them with joy. It's the he is risen part that fills them with joy. And you see that all that is left is joy and worship, that fear is not appropriate. So, so, it is joyful worship that is the appropriate response. It's not the only thing they do. You see that they then do what He commands. Go and tell my brothers, He says. The angel told them that as well. Do you think the woman at that point felt that the commands of Jesus were burdensome? You think that? You know, do you think they went, oh, you know, we've just met Jesus. He's, told, he's, he's given us a job to do. It seems, it seems such an effort. You know, I'd really hope that, that uh, I was just going to be able to follow Jesus and it wasn't going to impact my life in any particular way. No, he's given me a job to do, to go and tell his brothers. Do you think that's how they felt? Sometimes the sort of things we hear from believers today, isn't it? But you see, the command, once we see that Jesus is alive, we see who he is, the commands of Jesus are not burdensome. There's joy in obedience. Matthew is holding up these women and saying, here they are, they're they're modeling a response to the risen Jesus. Let's ask ourselves the question this morning. Is this our response to the risen Jesus? There there might be some of us who, who, who really grapple with the fact of of whether or not Jesus is alive, I really would encourage you to think seriously about the empty tomb and the evidence for it. Most of us know that Jesus is alive, that He rose from the grave. Have we followed through to say, well, what that means is my joyful obedience should be front and center within my life? One caveat, though, and that is that we follow Jesus joyfully, though many oppose him. Because we've noted the opposition of the to Jesus as we've gone through this story. But but just let's look again at how willful it is. The Jewish leaders are really remarkable in it. You see how much they know about Jesus. They know that Jesus claimed that he would rise again. They know the timetable too. He will rise again on the third day. That's why the guard was only posted for three days. And in their speech, they warn about the possibility of a great deception should the disciples find the body. They call Jesus a deceiver, and they warn about the possibility of a greater deception. And yet, when the guards come back with the account of what happens, it is the chief priests themselves who become the deceivers. Can you see that the question for them is not evidence? They are presented with absolutely clear evidence. They know what Jesus has claimed. They hear the eyewitness accounts of the guards. They are initially faithful witnesses, those guards, and yet they choose not only to disbelieve themselves, the religious leaders, but they choose to deceive others by spreading the story far and wide. Incredible weight of responsibility lies upon those people, isn't there? to not only know that you ought to believe Jesus, but that you actively dissuade others from believing in Jesus. They come from the same stock as the religious leaders who were there at Jesus' birth. Remember, the wise men came to the palace and said, where is he to be born, king of the Jews? And, and the religious leaders are consulted by Herod, and they know exactly where it should be. He's, he's in Bethlehem. And the wise men go, but they don't. Sometimes we, we think that, that people just need more evidence, that that is what's going to convince them. But but we've been learning on Wednesday nights, we've been working our way through the confession, that what people tend to do with evidence, Romans 1 tells us this, is that the evidence that we have left to ourselves, we just push it down, we bury it. I remember chatting to somebody just whenever a uh, cap or here, I remember chatting to somebody who, who was in uh, trouble with, with financial things, and one of the things they said they, they never did was when you go to the auto bank and it asks you, would you like to see your balance? And they always went, no, don't want to see my balance. They suppress something that they know to be true. But, but here you see, with a, great, with a great deal of evidence, we, we, we suppress something that we know to be true. Matthew Henry said, those who are resolved not to come into the light will catch at straws. They'll grasp at straws. Maybe some of us can, can remember times, maybe, maybe years, whenever we knew that to be true for, for our lives. We, we knew that uh, there, there was a uh, an issue that we needed to face, and uh, uh, we, we, as far as Jesus was concerned, and, and we, we just sort of held it at arm's length. We, we, we didn't want to, to, to face up to it. That was true for me for a while. Maybe some of us are in that position now. We, we, we find ourselves sort of holding down the truth about Jesus. This is what we're like, you see, how we need God to work in our lives, how, how we need to pray for God to work in us, in our friends and neighbors. Now, you see, we're called to follow Jesus joyfully in a world like this, a, a world that is truth-suppressing and worship-diverting. That's also what Romans tells us, that we take the worship that's due to God and we, we, we place it on other things. A truth-suppressing, worship-diverting world. But you know what happens As we follow Jesus joyfully within this world, as the story moves on from here, goes into Acts and into the early church, what do we find is that that these folk were were so caught up with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was so working in them. Their their, their joy in Him, their, their obedience to Him was so complete that so many people came and began to follow Jesus too, even some of those who were most hostile to Jesus at the beginning that's how it's going to be for us. How do we we win a world for Jesus? How do we win a community for Jesus? Well, it's it's not particularly as we have clever strategies and, and lots of plans and so on. We don't see massive evidences of those within the early church. But what we do see is people who took the risen Jesus seriously and joyfully obediently followed Him. There's God's plan for winning the world. So, so let's us, we're here today and we're Christians, let's us be resolved to, to joyfully, obediently follow this risen Jesus and see what God does. Go into your workplace this week, joyfully, obediently follow Jesus, see what God does. Joyfully, obediently follow Jesus in your home, in your social circles. See what God does. Get involved in the work of CAP and be pressed into the community as you joyfully, obediently follow Jesus. See what God does. Let's pray together.